Hello, I'm Jana Rohnert, founder and chairwoman of the board of Image Skincare. And what I love about beauty is all things skin. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. Today's episode has Denise and I buzzing about business longevity. I'm Jessica Quick, joined by my partner, Denise. On this episode of Beauty Is Your Business, we are taking a deeper dive into what makes businesses, especially in beauty, stick around for decades. And we had the opportunity to invite Jana to join us. Welcome, Jana. Hello. How are you? Very well. Thank you. We are excited to jump into your story to image skincare story. Maybe it's the time of year, it makes us all retrospective, but it just feels like a lot of brands this year have closed. Not a surprise, our industry is super competitive. We would expect a level of attrition, but recently it feels like there has been a lot that have left. And what we wanted to take the opportunity to do was step through with a brand owner that really has survived decades of changing business atmospheres, changing consumer behavior, and get some best practices and lean into your expertise on what makes a brand stick around. I know, Image, you're coming in on a big anniversary. I believe it's 20 years coming up. So we would love to pick your brain and understand how businesses today in this industry can really withstand the pressure and make it last the long run. So thank you so much for joining us. What I'd love to jump into and start with is take us back to 2003. So you're an esthetician, you're dealing with rosacea, you see this hole in the marketplace. What was the marketplace like in 2003 when you thought about Image, when you started it? And then how is it different today or is it the same? A lot of things have changed, including my age. But back in 2003, I mean, the landscape was very different than what you see today in professional skincare. We've had a total transformation as it relates to the digital world. We've had a total transformation of online accessibility. I think, you know, with the online consultations, AI, and really just how consumers buy skincare today has really evolved, certainly in our professional business. I think the thing that has not changed since 2003 is that the blend of science, clinical efficacy, and what the consumer is expecting today really has not changed much. I think their expectation of products changing their skin has probably accelerated. You know, people have a little bit shorter timeline of when they would like to see that end result or that wrinkle removed, or that spot gone. But I think the clinical efficacy is when we talk about longevity in our business, I think that clinical efficacy has been one of the secret sauces to our success. So finding new customers, Jess, can I talk about this often, finding new customers and getting customers to pivot into your brand versus something else. And you've talked about kind of this need for clinical. Talk to us a little bit about what you're doing to attract these new customers. And are you speaking to them differently now than you did when you launched the brand? 
that's such a great question um, because acquisition is so very important to growth, right? And obviously when we started, I had zero customers and was in zero countries and was knocking on doors. And today we have 30,000 spas that carry our brand in America. We're in 60 plus countries globally. And so the, the speaking to that customer and acquisition is very different today. For us, it starts with the professional and attracting that professional to endorse our brand, to stock our brand, to learn about the brand. And that's where that passion and that relationship first comes. Because when you have an esthetician that loves something, it's pretty easy to translate that love of a product or a treatment to the person that you're working on who is your trusted customer. And so it starts with the professional, then it moves to the consumer. And so that's kind of one voice of how we speak to the customer and how we acquire those customers. And it's interesting because I think, you know, in our business, in order to talk the talk, you have to kind of walk the walk. So it's interesting that I am an esthetician and that all of our sales team are all licensed estheticians. So I think that acquisition competitive edge is very unique with image because when, when a representative is talking to a doctor or a medical spa or a hotel spa, because there's so many different channels today, right? They are able to talk in that same language. And that holds true for us globally too. Our distributors are mostly built um, of teams of estheticians. So that model for us to acquire a customer has been very successful. Because I think when you talk about acquisition, I think the first acquisition is not so hard. You can spend a lot on marketing. You can spend a lot on Google ads, TikTok, but it's the second pass if the consumer buys that product and says, yeah, it does what it says it's going to do. It smells good. It feels good. And I like the story and the history behind the company. And this is a company that I will trust. So it's kind of a long answer to acquisition, but I think all of those elements are very important in longevity and in growing your business. It's an interesting answer. And what I liked is for me, what listening to you, it sounded like you honed in early on to a niche area, in this case, the professional. And then you went about finding the right teammates to support that professional. So if I equate that to a business today that's starting out, how important do you think it really, you know, if I wanted to bring into the marketplace something that required, maybe it's more affordable, maybe it's more mass, then does my team look like that? How important is the team in representing that brand, that specific niche education? Is that one of the keys to success? I 1000% am going to say yes, because even as the founder of this company that you or some of the listeners might be interested in bringing to the market, the founder has the vision, but the team really allows that vision to become a reality. And if culturally you don't have the team that has the same passion, that has the same knowledge, and that has the same basic experience in that realm, it's going to be very hard to create an authentic team that people will trust. Because I think one of the things that's really changed in the last 
20 years with image is authenticity. It was kind of easy to be behind a curtain when you didn't have social media, when you didn't have these these tools or these apps or this technology that can either propel a brand very quickly or can really smash a lot of lies behind what a company is talking about. So I think truth and in, in what's in the bottle and truth, what's behind the company is even more important today in building an authentic team that speaks the truth. Considering you are coming up to the 20-year anniversary and you have seen this amount of change in the industry, would love to get your perspective on the idea of what was kind of the biggest pivot that you had to make when you saw what was happening in skincare, what was happening in technology. Over this 20 years, there have been a lot of small changes and a lot of massive changes. And Oftentimes, brands, as they age, they have a tendency to just go back to doing what they've always done. And that can either be a great thing because you stay the course, or it can really take a company backwards and not let them survive in the growth and in the new world. So if you can maybe share with us like one or two real big pivots that you feel like you made that has enabled you to stick and stay versus, you know, just sort of fade away? I think all of those are such good points because that's a pretty multifaceted question. And I think there's three or four things that I can think of that has given us staying power. And I think the first is having a really clear vision of even if you're in those beginning years of what you think the organization will look like one, three, five, 10, 15, 20 years. And I think from our standpoint, I always had the vision that image would be the number one professional skincare company. And so that was a pretty lofty goal 20 years ago when people are like, what? You're from a farm and You've never really run a business. And yeah, you've been in sales and marketing for these big companies, but you're not a formulator. You're not a chemist. What, what are you thinking you could be number one? So I think the first big thing to surviving is having a big lofty goal that you kind of stick on that path. I think the second element in pivoting is always remaining very curious and listening to the people that are on the ground, your salespeople, your customer service team and not getting caught up in a closed door, looking at a computer, you know, organization, because I think that level of just having coffee talk with people, as a leader, you can be so much more successful if you talk to people versus if you email or you direct people. So I think that's been a big pivot. And then another pivot, which might sound really odd or weird, is a pivot to really spread out the organization. And what I mean by that is having multiple warehouses because we saw the vision already very early, many, many, many years ago, even before Amazon, that people would probably want things faster. So we were one of the first companies that had multiple warehouses, which is kind of a feat to have a lot of, you know, we have over a hundred SKUs. So to have, well, a thousand really, when you look at all the different components, but you know, we knew that customers wanted things faster. So we made that pivot very early. And I think we also saw the vision that in the world of professional skincare, if you really want to 
tackle a wrinkle, you're probably going to have to use a chemical. You know, you just can't rub aloe vera on your skin and your wrinkles go away. I wish you could, but you can't. You kind of have to use these chemicals. And we also knew that kind of the whole clean clinical, that people were thinking cleaner. So how do you still continue to use these strong chemicals that have been used in dermatology, plastic surgery for years, but combine them with more cleaner ingredients that are more friendly to the skin? So those are kind of, I think, the top three kind of random, like shipping, ingredients, and vision that I think are kind of important that, you know, it's much better to be the lead dog than is the last dog to catch up to these things. I'm really fascinated. The fact that you had the vision early on of seeing some things in the marketplace like shipping, knowing people are going to want things a bit early. I definitely see companies that have stuck a bit. They actually get really good at not just being a skincare brand or a hair care brand. They get really good at some of these other business practices, so operations or finance. I'd love to understand a little bit in the beginning, you know, you start out the esthetician, the professional skincare track. Talk us through, you start to get those first big orders coming in. Maybe it's a, you know, multi-door salon that comes in and so forth. Were you ready at that point with all the inventory lined up? Was it something that you went out and sold first, I'm going to call it, went into the marketplace and got people excited. And then when you got the PO, had to figure it out. How did you step through that kind of first big hurdle of growth? So I approached it a little differently. I had all the products lined up. I had everything in the warehouse. I had all the marketing ready and I had zero customers. <laughs> so I took a little different approach to where I knew that the product had to come first. I knew that the clinical studies had to be done first on the product before I and building a team could convince them of the efficacy of the risk that they would be taking on a brand that nobody's heard about. So I kind of did all the back-end work, which obviously for several years brought in no money. So I think financially, you have to really be ready to put your things in place and feel really, really good about the product because that is the longevity part, right, is the product. And then go out and try to start selling or marketing or bringing a team together. So that has proved very successful if I had to do it again, I'd do it exactly the same way. That says a lot right there. I do think you bring up a good point around the idea of longevity. I can't tell you how many brands that we hear that want to come to market and they want to be profitable within 60 days. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> I think that in this moment that we've been having with D2C and hearing about some of these large numbers, what people get a little bit bedazzled by is what's happening on the backside of things. How do you move towards profitability, but do it with the intent of longevity versus how fast can I make the money and how fast can I get out? So I'm hearing you say that you started this with a very different vision in mind. Very, very different. And I think when you think about scaling a company, not just making profit, and if you're really thinking of scaling a company, that requires a tremendous amount of trust for people for a very, very long time. And I think in today's direct-to-consumer channel, 
trust is very difficult to be built if you don't ever touch that customer other than shipping a box. So I think we have been very fortunate that we have a very omni-channel. We have brick and mortar, we have direct-to-consumer, and of course, we engage in all of the social media marketing tactics to grow a business. But I think the core part of our business, we've never veered away from. And I think a lot of brands, it's interesting, just right before this podcast today, I, I do a lot of mentoring I get a lot of decks, people pitching me ideas because I invest and I like to help female founders specifically. And I got a deck today that was a body line, which is interesting, but they're veering out into candles and wellness. And my point back to them was, you haven't even secured your core business and created a business. And now you're veering off into all of these other different quote wellness because of margins and trends. And I think with image and what I would suggest to entrepreneurs, if you can't get your core business right, I'm not sure how you can get any auxiliary businesses right. So we have been, I mean, people have talked to me for years. Why don't you do makeup? Why don't you do other things? And my response is, I don't know those other things. I know skin and I love skin. I've been in the business of skin, and that's what we're going to focus on, and that's worked for us. So I understand these brands that they think they have one good thing, and then they want to veer off and be good at another. It's pretty darn hard to be good at five or six things. And so building a brand for longevity is most of these brands that you see, they've kind of stuck with their core business and taking care of their customers for all those years. And it sounds like really building that community, making sure you know who your core customers are so that you are servicing them. And I think this is a little bit of that question Denise asked earlier. And what I'm interested in with this is through the years, have your core customers changed? Because one thing that Denise and I talk about a lot, Denise has a saying, the business looks like the founder. And what is really interesting to me about that is that makes sense today. But then what does this business look like as that founder I think you started the conversation saying, you know, a little bit older than when I started it. So has the core consumer changed? And do you continue to evolve to grow with them? Or do you continue to focus on the ones that are in that core demographic you started with? It's a great question. The core, if you think of the goalpost of aging, right? So you have goalpost of aging. And I think in 2003, when the company was founded, the ladies and men that could afford a spa visit, a doctor's visit, a plastic surgery visit, a treatment, that core was very small. Today, that market has opened up tremendously from a pricing structure, from an availability structure. It's no longer just available to, I'm saying the rich and famous, that sometimes maybe 20 years ago, that's all that went into these high-end plastic surgeons. And you see teenagers getting these treatments. And understanding that in order to age later, you have to start now and you probably have to start very early. So I don't know if our core has changed, but I think we've had the vision to see that in the professional skincare world, the business starts when a mom has the baby and the baby needs sunscreen. The business starts when a working mother or a working father sees that their child has teenage acne. So I think we've expanded our product portfolio to be able to address 
anybody that walks through a professional door or that goes online that wants a professional product, we want to be able to help them. You talk about this idea of focus and being very focused and having estheticians as salespeople and your core team really knowing skincare, which is a wonderful point of view. It also puts you in a position where you're very focused on skincare. And I'm curious about this idea of diversity of thought. It's always a subject that I love because there's two sides of the same coin where on one side, focus gives you a lot of clarity, but can also be very internal. You get the same ideas from the same people because you're talking to all the same group. Then there's this idea of diversity of thought people from the outside, whether it's advisors or other folks that have a different point of view. Because you have been in the business for the length of time that you've been in it, and you have been so focused, where do you find your diversity of thought? Where do you look to or point to to get different ideas than the ones you already have had for the past 20 years? So the first place that we look is within our core company. And when I've got 21-year-olds that are running TikTok and 22-year-olds that are running Instagram, I get a pretty good different point of view. So I think the first place we look is internal. The second place that we're fortunate to look is because we're in so many countries and one of my hobbies, luckily, is traveling, which I love to do. I really do get to see a lot of perspectives of what different cultures, different ethnic groups, whether it be, I was recently in Kenya talking about skincare, and that's a much different conversation than if I'm in Beverly Hills talking about skincare. So the second is the travel and kind of the global. And I think the third point of view is really just doing a lot of social listening. And that is where the social media for me, it's not even the amount of followers, which we have a lot, but it's listening to those people who follow us and that don't. And what do they say about image skincare? Because if you don't stay curious about what people say, then you're never going to know really what people think. And if you don't ask people what they think, then you're always going to think that your way is the right way. And what I have learned over the years, and I continually learn, is my first idea now is generally not the way it's going to end up. Because when you bring a team in and you get a different point of view, all of a sudden you think, wow, I never thought of that. Or you are exactly right. That is not a good way of doing this or solving this problem. So I think that the modern leader has to be very, very curious at all times. I'd love to dive into that a little bit more, this idea, the modern leader one of the things that we face, Denise and I, in working with clients and so on, is really helping them work on their business, not in their business. What were the catalysts to say, okay, I'm ready to take you know, this chairwoman position and not be in the day-to-day -day of it? When was that and how did you know it was the right move for you? Well, those are not easy things to do, kind of like giving away a child, which like, I have twins and there are days that I want to do that now that they're teenagers, but you can't. I think you, you have to take some time to self-reflect on your skill level, number one. And, you know, there are many founders who can get it to hear, but maybe don't have the skill level to really get it to hear. So that's a self-reflection element. 
Number two, I think you have to realize after a period of time for me, I always said after 15 years, I would want to potentially do something else, not be in the day-to-day because I think 15 years leading is good. So I replaced myself after 17 and some had to do with my family and shifting my commitments and my focus to some other different things and still being the visionary, which I, I hope that I am still, but, you know, creating a team where I feel very confident that they might have some new good ideas of which they do. So it's a, a few tears. It's a lot of emotions, but I think if you need to get to that next level, I think that's where the modern leader, you do have to have some different leadership, I think, to move forward. And then you talk about international and both the inspiration that you get from it, as well as more of that global footprint for your brand. When did you decide to take your brand international? At what point did you say, okay, I'm in the US market, I'm at this level? Sometimes it's opportunistic, sometimes it's planned. From your brand story, when did you go global? So that's an even more personal question because that is one thing I did not plan at the very time when I, I first went global. I had started the company in 03 and 05, I got married for the first time and I was 39 years old. And my husband, I married, was still finishing up some medical work in Germany. He's German. So he said, I can't move to America. And I said, well, the company's pretty young. I don't have a lot of sales. I'm doing a lot of work, but I can move to Germany for a year. So when I moved there, I then understood how the EU works and all the EU regulations. And I was lucky enough to be in near Berlin, where all of you can get kind of like a one compact sense, because if you get approved in Germany, then you're approved in 26 countries. I utilized that year to get all my products approved in the EU. Then we started in a clinic in Germany, and it just kind of propelled from there. So it was by luck in a way, but it turned out really great. So most of our distributors, especially in the EU, have been with us more than 15 years. No, that's fantastic. We come from a background of international, so it's always a soft spot. And when you were talking about travel earlier, you probably saw Denise and I like eyeing each other because it's definitely one of those things that we feel strongly about too, being out in the world, being a global citizen, seeing how other people think and process. It just inspires. It gives you so many more just inspiration that you come back with and you don't even realize. I mean, you can spend a weekend in an Amsterdam, you know, marketplace and come home and all of a sudden you have no idea the things that come out of your mouth, out of your brain. So love that that it's one of the inspirations for the brand. Love this chance, Jana, to really dive into your, really just your experience in this, in the role, in the industry. I know you do a lot of mentorship work. I know you're on other boards and especially I know you say you're a farm town girl and you do a lot to give back to that community as well. And so we're just so grateful for all of this time for the listeners. I get to hear you firsthand walk through some of the challenges that you've had, the ways you've overcome them, and then you know how you think about running this business. So thank you very much for the time. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun to talk with also two very highly intelligent, motivated women who kind of want to you know, help listeners and other people just 
learn from other experience and people who have been there, done that. I think that's the best tool for learning kind of what resonates with you and how you can move forward. So thank you very much. If our listeners do want to reach out to you, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you or with Image Skincare? Yeah, so it's pretty easy for me. It's just at Jana Ronert on Instagram. And for Image, it's just at Image Skincare or ImageSkincare.com. Thank you so much for being on the show today. We've loved having you. Hope to have you back again. And we wish you much continued success and a happy anniversary on your 20 years. Thank you very much. Happy holidays to you both. And if you'd like to keep buzzing with us, please head over to buzzbeauty.com. This has been Beauty Is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network. And find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.